Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're doing a deep dive on the new South Korean sci-fi epic, Space Sweepers. And welcome to episode 83, Space Sweepers! Exclamation mark! I'm exclamation Ale- mark! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Because we're very excited about this. Uh, I'm Alex, and I am your badass captain. I'm Freya, and I am your poetry reading droid. I am Macy, and I am your engine room gremlin. I can see that for you. That's very you. That is. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today it's been a little while since we've done a deep dive, dear listeners, and today we are doing a deep dive on what I consider to be possibly the most important sci-fi movie of the last 20 years, Uh, and I'm about to convince you of why. I know, I know it's Jupiter Ascending. I was going to say, Jupiter Ascending's been kicked off the top spot. That is extreme for Alex. Well, okay, here's the thing. I love Jupiter Ascending. I love and adore Jupiter Ascending, and it's still my favorite movie, but I don't think that it is as important as a sci-fi movie as this one but we'll get into all that in a minute before we do what are we reading fellow serpents well speaking of things set in space on spaceships i recently read finally it has been (laughs) on my kindle forever an unkindness of ghosts by rivers solomon which absolutely blew me away this is a fantastic book um very sort of dark heavy in terms of substance matter and theme, but beautifully written. Like the plot just sort of pulls you along. The characters are really interesting. It's set on a generation ship in which the class and race structures relate to whereabouts in the ship you are top to bottom. And the main character, Asta, is a healer slash medic who is investigating the death of her mother and gets involved in a lot of mysteries about how the leaders of this generation ship function and what's going on in the society. It's really good, excellent sci-fi. And in the fantasy sphere, I read an early copy of The House of Always, which is book four in Jen Lyon's Chorus of Dragons series. This is about a magical house that wants you to have feelings. It sure is. It's all all my jam. As usual, it is stuffed full of many, many characters having many, many feelings, lots of queer relationships, lots of dragons and prophecies and magic, and just a delightful installment in the Gen Lion series, which we love. I feel like the important thing to tell the listeners is that the Kraken is a gay pirate queen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's important for you to know. Who is a Kraken? And her girlfriend is a spoiler, but also amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I love her. I love them both. Uh, And then in a completely different genre, as usual, I've got (laughs) also my hands on an advanced copy. This one is of Disarmed, which is the second book in the novelizations of the Fence graphic novel. So the books are written by Sarah Rhys Brennan, one of my favorite YA authors. They are hilarious They are touching. Sarah is extremely good at writing people who are miscommunicating in a way that is both deeply frustrating but very realistic. Mm. So you spend your entire time wanting to scream at the pages and tell people to have real conversations. (laughs) But at the same time, it's so funny and (laughs) so realistic for dumb teenagers that you just enjoy it. So this one is about the group of fencing students at this particular high school going to a fancy fencing camp in France. And various romantic (laughs) shenanigans that they get up to. And on the non-book side of things, I have fallen into another sea drama. Yes, welcome. (laughs) I'm like enjoying this greatly. I'm enjoying greatly, like sitting back on the edge of the pool with a Mai Tai as you two like dive bomb through the middle of the safety rings and just have a splash fight in the pool. Well, this one is across multiple genres. You can't climb back out of the pool because yeah. it's not finished. Amazing. So it's like we've dive bombed in and are now swimming around being like, someone's removed the ladder. Amazing. You are so Sims. Many you, are, you are both Sims and someone has removed the ladder. Exactly. So this <laughs> Please one, don't unlike, drown. unlike The Untamed, which released in full on Netflix all God. at once. 
So you won't be watching it. episodes on the bus to keep up with you because you are an engine of sea drama watching, Freya. Yeah, I'm an engine of sea drama. Thank you. <laughs> this one, the English title is Word of Honour. It is being released on YouTube, but the English subs are quite behind where the uh, Chinese roars are being released. And so you're only getting a few episodes per week, which is agonizing because mm-hmm. spoilery <laughs> gifts keep appearing on Tumblr and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I have friends who are watching the roars who are taunting me in DMs. Anyway, it's hard, a bit hard to explain the plot because like most sea dramas, it just sort of throws you in at the deep end. And now at episode 12, we're only just starting to get the backstory. But it is about... A tortured lone swordsman who used to be an assassin and is now wandering the world in his final days, pretending to be a homeless person who drinks in the sunshine, who then runs into a beautiful flirting troll with a giant fan. I love him. Who lays eyes on him and immediately goes, this is clearly a hot person in disguise. <laughs> I love and him. And is correct. So much. <laughs> and follows him around, flirting from behind the fan and trying to wheedle his backstory out of him. And then they accidentally adopt some children. And there's a whole lot of <laughs> yeah. stuff to do with like clan drama and a magical MacGuffin. It's very sea drama. It's very sea so drama. It's so much fun. It, by like episode four, they're married and have a son and a daughter. <laughs> I'm, yeah. It's incredible. You, you, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's got, high it's literature really is what good, it is. Really good um, wuxia action scenes, if that's what you're into. Like, there's some yes. really nice fights. With, um, like, the, old the school, are... uh, like, really old school effects, which is extremely cool to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I... the wuxia effects are really fun. It's yeah. clearly, like, got a much lower budget than The Untamed, <laughs> mm. but at the same time, it is slightly better paced. So, so here, here is my eternal question, and why I only ever end up voluntarily watching palace intrigue dramas. Mm-hmm. Are there any women... There are a yes. few women. Like, main character they, women? They, yeah, yeah, they adopt a daughter. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So oh, the and the daughter is not no, a there are child. two protagonists. No, the she's like a teenager. The are both men. Okay. But there is a, there is a prominent uh, female character who's, yes, one of, the, one of the people that they adopt. And then there are a lot of extremely cool lady assassins <laughs> as side characters. I do like a good lady assassin. All There's right. a lot of them. They're fun. All right. You're not getting me because I still need to watch Hikaru no Go. Um, because right. Well, what for, have you been reading recently? Well, for some reason, I lost the ability to watch TV. Uh, so that's been entertaining. Um, it's just, you know, ups and downs in, in, the, in the, the brain, the, the media consumption brain of the Macy. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's very entertaining. It's now been one year since we went to full-time work from home. Um, yeah. we, we say in, you know, what's it, the 12th of March today? Macy? read in the past two weeks. I read some books. I read The Midnight Bargain by C.L. Polk, which is amazing and which C describes as Pride and Prejudice Pokemon, which it is not at all. It is not at all that. But I just need to tell you, dear listeners, that C tells people that it is. What it actually is, is a delicious Regency romance in which the heroine does not have to choose between marrying the love of her life and saving her family's reputation and fortunes, because those are the same thing. She has to choose between marrying the rich man of her dreams and magic, and having Mm. an ambition, and having like actual dreams and goals of her own, because she lives in a society where married women are collared to prevent them having any access to spirits in case the spirit possesses their unborn child. Oh shit. And is Ooh, born shit. as this kind of demon sorcerer baby thing. Um, yeah. And so women can't practice magic and it's completely suppressed, which is a little on the nose, really. Mm-hmm. 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 Particularly yep. looking at like drug trials and, and all of this um, in our world. And... So that's delightful. Very fast paced. Um, I read it inside of about 30 hours uh, in like a two day fugue. Um, and I then wandered off and the next weekend read Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. And this is a delightful like mid 20th century Gothic, kind of a twist on a Gothic. 
in which a bubbly, vivacious young Mexican socialite goes out to a remote manor in the wilderness, up in the mountains, to try to see if her recently married cousin is all right, because she's been sending some very worrying letters about voices in the walls. Mm. And her English new husband, nobody really knows who he is. And so it's kind of a dark gothic. It's very, very gothic. gothic. It's very gothic. It's dark. It's creepy. It's delightful. It has so many well-drawn characters. There are weird mushrooms. There's like... Macy loves creepy weird fucked mushroom. up eugenicists who get their come up. As soon as I read this for the first time, I hit the mushrooms and was like, Macy will love this. <laughs> I think I got to 50% through, went on Twitter and was like, everybody tell me your favourite recent gothics because I need to read more gothics, clearly. Um, and then was like, I, I predict that this book is going to end like the second episode of Hannibal, in which Hannibal, they discover a serial killer who has been feeding people to mushrooms while they're still alive. Uh, and it doesn't. It does its own thing, which is possibly even better. Mm. And I love it. I've also go. read a lot of Boku no Hero Academia fanfic. And right now I am reading Star Wars crossovers? Interesting choice. Okay. Interesting choice. Okay. There's just okay. a lot of fic in this fandom, y'all. And yeah. it's comforting at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, if Macy has mysteriously lost the ability to watch TV, that makes me feel a lot better about my life because I continue to have lost the ability to read books. Um, I realize lately, like, I haven't read a book in a long time, it feels like, other mm. than, like, other than homework for the podcast, right? And I feel like that's mm-hmm. taking up my reading brain. Um because I've just been like watching things and reading fanfic and I feel mm-hmm. kind of like self-conscious about it but like knowing that you have a hard time like watching things right now kind of makes me feel better so thank you for so saying definitely that. I keep like wandering off or like real I forget that you have to like watch and listen and yeah. then I get confused because things happened because I was wasn't listening yeah and I'm like oh no and my brain yeah. is yeah. yeah 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 and like the, the sensation that I'm experiencing is that I will like read words on the page and like my eyes will be flicking back and forth mm-hmm, but I won't mm-hmm. be processing any of it mm-hmm. um Completely. and so like for me what like watching things has just been like a lot easier um and I wonder if it is like a pandemic thing it it has to be some kind of like weird together we thing. make one entire media consumer <laughs> <laughs> by our powers combined we should we should go be transformers uh Yes, 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 yes. Was it, Digimon, was it Digimon who like joined together to become like I think it was Digimon. Digimon. I think it was Digimon. Transformers yeah. do that too, I think. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's one how of they those, make babies. Anyway, let's not do that. Uh, moving on. <laughs> let's not do that. Um, so I too have been watching Word of Honor. I dragged Freya into it because our mutual friend Grace uh, <laughs> came into my DMs to be a local menace, and that's with capital L, capital M, local menace, <laughs> Grace. Yeah. Yes. Um, did Grace get you as well, or was it me that dragged you in? It was Grace. Oh, okay. Yeah. Amazing. Grace is a Amazing. menace. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's been a it's been a great great good fun time. Uh, and then I've also been reading, of course, the usual stunning variety of MXTX fanfic. Yep, um, yep. And uh, that's about it. Let's move on from this, because I don't really care about talking about what I've been reading. I really want to talk about Space Sweepers, the best <laughs> sci-fi movie. We know. Oh, we yes. know. Dear Min- listeners, was it like literally three minutes after finishing this that Alex like appeared yeah. in this like cartoonishly like large form in the dms of the serpents uh-huh. going we have to i like slammed through the to. wall like the kool-aid man you and did I was not like, slide into our dms that was not a slide no, no i slammed slam. i slammed, slammed through the, the door <laughs> um like shut up bitches listen to me <laughs> we have to do a deep dive on this we have to i i genuinely unironically believe that space sweepers is the most important sci-fi movie of the last 20 years and it is so good for so many different reasons, and it's so cool. And I don't know how I'm going to be coherent in this episode. Apparently, the dot What's points... What's it about, Alex? Uh, yeah, I was just about to say, according to the dot points, I have to explain to you what this movie is about. Um, so it's like 900 years in the future or something, and late-stage capitalism has just completely taken over. Late-stage capitalism, for one thing, has brought us into space, which is cool, but sci-fi Elon Musk, a.k.a. regular Elon Musk, has... Yep. <laughs> has decided 
decided to do some space eugenics by taking all of the genetically good people, big sarcasm quotes around that, big, big sarcasm quotes around that, and take them up into into like a little bubble in space where they live in Eden, this like perfect his Eden. Eden, his Eden, his paradise um, on like a big... Um, space station kind of it's a snow globe orbiting it's, it's a, a snow, snow globe, globe. it's yeah. a snow globe they he, he, he has all it's his a perfect biodome. people living in a biodome that's a it's good floating. sci-fi word for it it's not a- and meanwhile and he has done this because earth is dying like there have been so many wars and so much pollution and they have just completely wrecked the planet um mm. a lot of people are still living on the planet um in like gas masks and like suffering every day and it's it very, reminded very... me a lot of the photographs out of san francisco last summer yes yeah. yes yes and yes. it's not it's not 900 years in the future it it's is not it's like 200 70. was it 70 yeah years. it was it's like said in 2070 years yes Oof. it's 90 yeah you're right yes uh, I think that's where I got the. I was like, "There's a nine somewhere in there." There is a nine. A nine yeah. followed by no, a zero. It's, it's because it's 2090. Seventy yeah. years in the future. This is how much we're gonna have Ooh. fucked the planet up. Yep. Uh, yep. Late stage capitalism uh, is yes. the antagonist of this film, and also sci-fi Elon Musk, aka regular Elon Musk. Um, do I AKA know his actual Thor name? Thorin Oakenshield. <laughs> aka Thorin Oakenshield, played by Richard Armitage. Um, <laughs> I was just very amused when I realized it was Richard Armitage because the last thing I saw him as was Thorin Oakenshield. I'm like, <laughs> Hobbit Musk. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> Hobbit Musk? Freya, did you have to? Did you have to? <laughs> well, technically, technically dwarf, but... So we have, let me finish explaining the movie, you guys. I'm, yes, what to happened? Explain Who this are the characters in the this characters movie who are Elon Musk? A, the, the characters who aren't sci-fi Elon Musk, a.k.a. regular Elon Musk, are a, a ragtag bunch of space sweepers who are uh, these people who are employed to uh, travel around in their little spaceships and pick up space trash and, like, debris. They're Roombas, and this basically. Is, yeah, they're Roombas. Yeah. Um, or garbage men. Uh, space garbage men. And this is really important because space debris is incredibly damaging. And if it like knocks into one of the, the space stations, like it can just like go right through and kill thousands of people. And while they're they're out picking up garbage, uh, they discover this little girl who has uh, she was like in this this uh, crash in the middle of space. And she so they they rescue her because she's still alive. And it turns out that she is this like scientific marvel she has these nanobots living inside of her and she is supposed to like go to mars to like help them terraform mars so that space elon musk aka regular elon musk can take his biodome people full of people well it's not just white people to their credit it's not just white people in his biodome um his his biodome of perfect people uh genetically perfect people it's pretty it's a lot of white it, people, but yeah. uh, Kim Tao, Kim Tao, the main character, was also growing up in in the biodome, um, and like as when a you're super at, soldier, as a super soldier, but also at space Elon Musk's uh, corporate like table where he's like telling mm-hmm. them, "Here's what you need to do." They're like, it's it's multiracial. Yes, just every time you see a big shot of them in their weird pajama future clothes yeah. of fancy people, it's like. It's a. It's very white. I want to also point out that this is a South Korean made yep. film, not a Western mm. film. Oh, it's very much a deliberate commentary on the opinions of space Elon Musk, right? It yes. is. It is. It is. Anyway, they have some adventures, and um, obviously, like people want to take the the little girl back, and um, so that she can like be a tool of capitalism. And well, so, they're like, so the Fuck that. thing that we've skipped over a little bit is yeah they are propagandizing this is a killer cyborg disguised oh, yeah. as a little girl and so you must turn it over to the police for the safety of everyone it has a hydrogen bomb in it um <laughs> and they she decide instead to sell it for money yeah. to the terrorist group who are allegedly wanting this bomb but unfortunately the boys grow feelings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the boys do grow feelings and this is one of my favorite things about the film because <laughs> they're just like so nurturing and um it has like these big these very very large found family tropes to it and um 
we are stronger together than we are apart and like everybody has come to this crew like with their own motivations and their own needs and their own aspirations and together they form a family uh yeah it did some cool stuff towards the end where um you know the last star wars movie the most recent one tried to do this like all of the little guys will come together to support the rebels but they didn't earn it or do anything to develop that throughout the entire movie this movie does that with actual purpose like and earns it Uh, you get to see people on the other sweeper crafts like first off swearing bloody murder at these um space jockeys who are better than them and keep stealing their trash bounties Mm -hmm. but then also Mm -hmm. like this one guy has a crush and so on and so forth like they get to be individuals and have reasons Mm. for and they caring about each other yeah and of all of the star wars movies it's probably the closest to rogue one Mm. in terms of the story arc of like what they're trying to do and mm-hmm. you know we've got a group of people who come together to form a ragtag crew but it does the firefly thing where the crew is already set up mm-hmm. when we walk mm-hmm. into the story certainly i think they become closer and grow to trust each other more mm-hmm. and learn more about each other as the story goes on but you get the sense that the thing that was holding them back from being like that before was not necessarily that they didn't like each other it's just that they're so stressed all the time yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's about capitalism yes so they're constantly at each other's not actually at each other's throats they're constantly in tension because Mm -hmm. they don't have any money yeah and all Mm -hmm. of them want the money for something different so you've got um kim taeho who wants the money to find the basically the body of his adopted daughter uh, who was killed in a space accident? Oh yeah, trigger warning for trigger warning for the death of a child in this book or in this in this movie. Mm. If that is something yes. that you're sensitive it, it about, it is dealt with in the text. It is not the child that they are rescuing. Yeah, no, it, this is part of his backstory. Yes, uh, although you do see flashbacks to his life with her and how yes, she so died. be careful if that's a thing for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know the captain just wants money for being badass and possibly booze and to keep her ship floating, and the engine room gremlin definitely wants money for tools and to keep the ship going Mm -hmm. and the droid also has a lot of money for the droid's own purposes which you find out about and so they don't relax around each other because they're all just constantly stressed by the gig economy Mm -hmm. that they are working under you and i freya have been having some chats lately about Mm -hmm. engines of story yes and i was wondering if you have any thoughts about what is the engine uh, by which, darling listeners, we mean, and Macy will attempt to explain it badly so Freya can fix it. The <laughs> engine is the thing that keeps you turning the page, watching the next minute. So, for example, a murder mystery has an engine of mystery, right? Uh, mm. so what is the engine here? So, like a lot of films, and like a lot of narratives that change their engine in mm-hmm. the middle, this one has a couple of different ones, because there are certain revelations and twists that change what your engine is so at the beginning you have a certain amount of engine which i think if this had been a tv show would be the engine of maybe the first plot arc which is just we're broke and we need jobs <laughs> you know we will do whatever totally it takes unrelatable to get, we will do whatever it takes to get money because we need money so yep. they are doing their space sweeping their debris collecting to get money when they find the child then the engine becomes what do we do with this bomb? Yep. Oh, we can sell it. Okay, we, we will sell it to get money. And then when we find out that maybe she isn't a bomb, maybe she's actually a very special super-powered child who has nanobots, the engine, the tension becomes, what do we do with her? And there are all these different people out after her. And How do we save she her? Is, she becomes the MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, while also being the emotional center of the film. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It, it gets you immediately because the initial motivations of the characters are very relatable yeah mm-hmm. yeah for sure and i think it also gets you because it starts with a very well it's the thing that a lot of ensemble films do is start with a very narrow focus on one character with a hugely sympathetic motivation mm-hmm. which is that mm. we start very tight on kim Teho, um who is on earth making bad decisions to try to see if a girl of the right age and size and racial identity might be his daughter. And everyone's telling him it's not. Like, th- this girl that we have in the morgue, is it's not your daughter. But he hocks his shoes to see if it is. Yeah. And so we immediately have a sense 
of how desperate he is and how little he has to trade on. Mm -hmm. He spends the next 30 minutes of the film in socks. Yep. Mm. Yep. Was it? No, it was like first 10 minutes and he digs some shoes out of a dumpster. Yep. Mm. And that was just very effective, right? That was this engine. And as a story, this one does have quite a lot of twists. And Mm -hmm. I think there were certain points where it could have ended. Mm -hmm. And or there were certain subplots that they could have possibly not done as much of if they wanted to like it was a pretty long movie it's a bit over two hours and every time you think it's heading for oh this will be the showdown something changes <laughs> or like this will be the thing that oh nope something else has changed and so it keeps sort of you know it keeps you going because a new danger comes like there's just so many new dangers and right. reversals of fortune which is a good a very common way to do an action film mm-hmm. and this is an action film yes really yeah it's an well, action sci-fi yes it's an action sci-fi it has bits of both and I want to mm. talk about genre a little bit here mm. because this film gave me all kinds of thoughts and feelings about the genre of blue collar sci-fi. Yeah. Mm. Right. Um, which I was digging into a little while back, but I think that probably the most recognizable example in recent memory is, you know, the Belters in The Expanse. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, um, I think Karen Osborne's book, uh, Architects of Memory, deals with people who are in hock to the company to a very in a very similar way to the characters in this film. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a big shift compared to Star Trek or Star Wars or Babylon 5, you know, the 90s um, characters who had power as opposed to characters who were under the power of a system that doesn't care. Because I think that's the thing about blue-collar sci-fi for me, which is different to outlaw Mm -hmm. sci-fi is that the characters in this movie could not just pick up their ship and nope out they are in debt they will always be in debt everyone involved wants them to always be in debt and there is not a way out Mm. or if there is you know it's a one in a million chance you know the this is the people who are working at walmart and walmart won't give them more than 39 hours so they'll never get health insurance right you know Mm. those are the kinds of questions the kinds of problems yeah it's interesting that you say that it's different to outlaw sci-fi because i feel like anytime you put characters in this situation Mm -hmm. you put them in a place where that becomes a gray area yes where they're like okay we're gonna sell a bomb to a terrorist organization because two million dollars you know, right. it's not a great it's not a great decision but it's the option that we have and right. i think even though firefly obviously had a lot of problems i think it did this quite well this mm-hmm. sense that these people who are si- slightly outside the system um will take legitimate jobs but they can't really survive on them because they have chosen to be outside the system mm-hmm. and so they will go into that smuggling and you know stealing and doing heists for money because that's the available gig. Yeah. And in this, and you're right in that this one, it's not so much that, oh, we've chosen to be outside the system. It's saying the system is set up so that even working within it, we have very little choice. And if we want to make real money and see a taste of freedom, we have to cross over into the illegal activity side of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, uh, yeah, Firefly is very much my, my kind of example of, of outlaw sci-fi. Um, Killjoys also fairly similarly is kind of on the boundary between it Um, Mm. and I think it does you you get into both right when you're talking about characters who are not in power in a system right so if you're looking at Jean-Luc Picard there's a totally different type of thing that that character can do different way that he acts upon the world than you or I yeah and so he's a fantasy and I don't know that you would necessarily call the characters at the beginning of this movie a fantasy, but I think the fantasy is breaking out of that system when you had to in order to save someone who was worth it. And one thing that I did like about this that I also really like about The Mandalorian, which I've been mm, watching mm-hmm. recently. Have you, have you either of you two I watched I badly want to, but I really resent having to pay yet again for yet another <laughs> streaming service. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, I have a family account. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, yep. Uh, it is, I've really enjoyed it, and partly because it is blue-collar sci-fi set mm-hmm. in the Star Wars world. It's very much about one person trying to get by. Mm-hmm. He has a job, a, a very specific skill set, and he hires himself out to do that job. He's an and independent this, contractor. He is an independent contractor who is constantly <laughs> blowing up his ship 
to oh, the like no. very badly. Like it keeps getting hideously damaged, and he keeps having oh. to like limp back to the people who kind of like him, who are like, "Oh no, not again!" And he's like, "Do you have any work for me? I can't afford these repairs." can I go and kill a monster or something like he, he literally like it tells you like his livelihood is his ability to move between planets and seek work. Right. And when he keeps going off on dangerous jobs where his ship keeps getting half destroyed, it's really expensive. Right. right it's right, this right. idea of, you know, he has to keep keeping himself in the air is actually taking most of his money. And it's, he's an yeah, Uber driver whose customers keep wrecking his car. Yeah. In a sense, yeah, that, that, I yeah. think that is probably the plot of, certain episodes of season two to be honest oof capitalism (laughs) oof capitalism indeed and this is set and this is the mandalorian is set in the post like now the good guys have won era Mm -hmm. and it's about these planets out there that aren't really seeing the you know glorious republic Mm -hmm. they've got these dregs of the evil empire still have outposts and bases and are still trying to do their thing and they're still not really seeing the benefits of, oh, you've been liberated from the Empire. Like, well, the Empire still has a base on our moon. You know, there's no <laughs> peace here. It's still really hard to survive. Yeah. This hasn't actually affected us all that much, which I think works really well um, along with the themes of that particular story. Mm. Yeah, it's the... I mean, it's it's the thing in, a, in American politics and anyone's politics where the, the people at the top change, and that's important, but day to day you still go to work right yeah and space sweepers doesn't really give you any sense that there is a grand political shift about to happen it's literally just well earth is choking on fumes one rich person has made a eugenic rich person haven and everyone else is just struggling to get by and there's no sense that if you if you elect the right person or that there is a sense there was no politics was there no i mean there is technically there's the fact that the terrorist organization in quotes is actually an environmentalist organization, but you get the sense that they're still kind of terrorists because they are trying to bring attention to what is going on. Mm-hmm. And they probably mm-hmm. are still blowing things up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they are also working to try and keep people's attention back to Earth instead of saying we should just give up on Earth and let the rich people go off to the biodome in Mars. Well, and you also have the hilariously unexamined fact that two of the main characters, the captain and our pilot, are ex-child super soldiers mm-hmm. specifically mm. like created by mm-hmm. Hobbit Elon Musk, um, who is now called Hobbit Elon Musk. I'm sorry, um, it's Freya's <laughs> fault. Yeah, okay, <laughs> but it's like you, th- this guy has created himself an extrajudicial enforcement force. He has soldiers. Yep. He has very, very like better than everyone else soldiers, better than the drug runners' soldiers. Yep. Um, mm. And he's just kind of created a corporate nation state in the sky yeah because like when you're richer than god you can do pretty much whatever you want because money is power um and Mm. that's the the, the really insidious thing about the way that character is presented is that he has this constant what he says aloud constantly Mm. in the way he acts to other people is that only the best people are coming and you have to deserve it and he is talking morally there yeah there's that scene where he um you know tries to convince like a, the reporter, a journalist, was it? Yeah, yeah, the journalist who's trying to expose him that if the journalist kills this terrorist for him, who's going to die anyway, he will allow him and his wife and family to come up to the utopia. And then when the guy does it, he goes, "Ugh, you know, you're so greedy. Look, huh, what you, you don't just deserve did. it after all. You yeah. don't deserve a place here." Whereas, like you know, all he's doing is that on a scale of thousands. Mm. But he's right. still, you can tell he enjoys playing God. That's it. He just right. says. He does. I am judging your morals as unworthy. You stay down here in the gutter where you belong. And like he doesn't take into account the fact that these people are desperate and that like he, he who has his entire Maslow's hierarchy of needs met and fulfilled to excess has the the privilege to think about morality when everyone else who is worrying about their baseline level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like actually like survival is kind of the most important thing and it goes mm-hmm. back to what Macy was saying about like you have to like if you are in a position where like you are literally just trying to survive and get by you have to compromise your morals in this the system that we live in and that's like shitty and and terrible well, or mm-hmm. rather that the system will do everything it can to make the game unwinnable. Yeah. And in order to survive that game, there is a very narrow band and then band may be negative, 
right? Uh, I don't think that I want to go as far as to say that when you're in a hard place, you can't have morals. <laughs> but no, I know no, it's no. not what it's you not, mean. It's not that um, you can't have morals. It's that you don't have the privilege of thinking about morality when you are occupied with thinking about survival. It's mm. like, like theft is bad, but if you are starving to death, you are going to steal a loaf of bread. I actually would argue that that is a moral thought, that it is mm. a thing to say, it is morally correct for me to steal to survive, is actually a very moral thing to be weighing up, is is the worth of life higher than the worth of goods? Mm. Uh, I don't mm. know, I feel like I, I never want, I, I don't want to say that, um, oh, Jean Valjean was less of a moral theorist than Javert, because I actually think he was more of one. Mm, mm, you know what mm. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, although yeah, I mean, yeah. that basically is kind of the point of the book. Miss. Right, right. Yeah. And the fanfic. <laughs> and the fanfic. Uh, but no, you're right. And, the, and this whole idea of, you know, who has the right to survive and who, who goes on and who gets a good life and who gets a bad life was making me very nostalgic for our first ever episode yeah. about, you know, if you see a utopia, whose dystopia is it built on? Yes, mm. yes, 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 yes. Yes, right. Did you want to talk about the uh, creepy black veins? <laughs> why? Yeah, I just had like a question. Like, did did either of you ever figure out why Space Elon Musk has like that? Like when he gets mad, like these creepy because he's black activating veins. the nanobots. Oh, it's the nanobots! Yeah, I t- I watched this movie twice now, and I was like, <laughs> See, I, I don't get understand that why this to is me, happening. It didn't really make a lot of sense. It I just happened like, oh, when he's, he's like it's something. when he's enhancing himself to be superhuman, right? So it's clearly uh, it's that he's nanobots. using. It's when he runs faster than a person could, or when he's healing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's when he was like getting too. angry at his space board meeting and like Darth Vadering everybody around the table <laughs> yeah. was that like a nanobot thing or was that just i'm angry so i my veins are glowing i think it was a like activating nanobots responding to emotion thing mm. at least that's how i was re- listen i'm giving this movie a lot of credit on the nanobots well he did he did like enhance himself to be immortal or something like he's yes like, he's like 170 yeah. well, see, 170 me, it, gave yeah. the, it gave the impression to me that whatever he'd done to enhance himself was starting to fail and that's why he wanted the girl back oh Oh. Which I, literally, as soon as we saw the black veins, I was like, oh, clearly that's what's going on. Like, that's a that's a known trope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever he's done is starting to fail. Yeah. He can't keep control of his own augmentation. He really her... had very terrible succession planning. Where was his heir? People like this don't have heirs. They're going to... He's like, I'm going to live forever and I'm going to be in power forever. Uh, mm. I don't need to think about heirs or, like, giving anyone else power or training. Absolutely not. No, no. But while we're talking about creepy Elon Musk immortal dude, I wanted to talk about how intertwined the space eugenics and the space colonialism here get, Mm -hmm. right? Because every, every time he opens up a new sphere of the universe for people to live in, to colonize Mm -hmm. again, the first thing he starts to do is decide who is allowed and who is not allowed, right? Who is people? In his new world, right? Um, And I think that one of the things that was very interesting to me in the late movie is when the bad guys win at the 75% mark or whatever it is legally mandated that the space guys, the bad guys win in a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And they kill everyone except for the crew on this ship because he still thinks of the crew on this ship as the right sort mm, but also yeah. his possessions yeah like his possessions he made yeah, them they're my super soldiers they went wrong they got away and now i can get them back yes because he i think he's not thinking of them necessarily as people who will be independent functional you know human beings who deserve rights because i don't know of he course really not actually thinks of anybody like that he's right. like they're they're my tools they got away like the girl i'm getting them back yes. mm. well they're numbers to him and they are stock and the movie did not go quite so far as to call them breeding stock or to get into that shape of eugenics. But mm-hmm. I would be shocked if it wouldn't, if it was, if it had a lot more space, if it was, you know, a series or something like that. Because he, he does look at people as animal, as livestock, I think. Mm. Yeah. And there's, there was that underlay of it when they're talking about that thing of like that super plant Mm. And, you know, the effect is that we will have these perfect plants. Everything will be glorious. That there's that put next to 
this idea right. of a perfect race of people is very clear that, that he will be tweaking from day one to put all living things close to his model of what they should be. This movie just has a lot to say about a lot mm. of things. It's mm. quite busy for a movie that has like mostly made up of chase scenes and people firing blasters and people hiding from other people. There's a lot <laughs> going on in the world building. There oh, is, yeah. and people managing to communicate with people who are different from themselves. Uh, thank you for leading me into that uh, with a perfect cue, Macy. As always, you're so good at transitions. <laughs> um, so this is Alex's... Which we will fun... also talk about later. This is, this is Alex's <laughs> fun facts, linguistics, and yelling about language corner, because this is kind of like the heart of why I think this movie is the most important movie of the last or the most important sci-fi movie of the last 20 years which is the stuff that it does with language in the first five minutes of the film you find out that everybody has a universal translator in their ear like this little Mm -hmm. bluetooth headset thing and so everybody is speaking their own native language and understanding each other and for one thing it's it's fascinating world building to just like hear so many different languages being spoken but also Mm -hmm. while I was watching this film the thing that really really struck me was that I've never seen a sci-fi movie that wasn't in English and the closest that I that I have gotten is like uh, a few episodes of the of the Expanse, where they have some of the the space pigeon, like the spacer pigeon, um, mm-hmm. and the fact that Firefly had like one idle thought that like maybe space could be not monolingual, and then it like complete, and then it was like never mind, we'll just and use it. Like, for oh aesthetics. no, well, we fixed it by like yeah, we'll just use we'll random just use Chinese it for swear words, yeah, and mm. pronounce them badly, Mandarin and ones. like yep. and like do some some uh, cultural appropriation. Uh, in the but background. I found that the translator thing is super, super fascinating yeah. to me because of the ways that language um, develops as a response to someone else talking to you. And so now I'm wondering if, like, if you're wandering around in space, mostly talking to a crew that is, say, speaking Korean and you're speaking French, mm. are you developing translated Korean vocal tics in French based on what your translator is interpreting it, the idioms as? Because those idioms are going to be idiosyncratic to Korean. Like that's nothing is going to translate completely perfect, you know? Yeah, mm. yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. And watching the movie as a viewer, you are mm. getting a different experience to what the people with the translators are getting one thing because mm-hmm. you know what are they actually hearing right like, are they hearing an, a vocal one assumes like voice in their own language overlaid on what they are hearing mm. you know to what extent do they actually hear the words that are being said by the do other they get tone being? and emotion yeah mm. yeah and and so we are seeing these people communicating very naturalistically in their own language um and we're just getting the subtitles for it. Mm-hmm. And it must admit, I was very impressed by the acting job, especially in those big scenes where there are people speaking five languages mm-hmm. at each other, mm-hmm. and they are reacting and like emoting and doing a back and forth exactly as though they completely understand mm. what 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 the, what's being said to them. And it was a really impressive job in how easy and every day they made it look. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if all of the actors got the, the whole script in their language, so they knew Possibly. what other people were saying. Mm. Yeah. They would have had That's to go. That's so to, interesting. It's the fact that they would have had to go to so much extra work to make this to make this possible. When they could have just made the film in Korean, and no one would have thought that it was weird. Because of course, like when you make a movie, you make it in your language. And mm-hmm. the fact that mm-hmm. they went to this extra step to include so many different languages, like there was English, there was Korean, there was French, there was Filipino, there was Nigerian pigeon, there was Russian, there was Chinese, there were a couple other, uh, there was Spanish. Um, Mm. There were a couple others which I didn't recognize. uh, Danish, I believe. Um, Mm. And, like, it's it's incredible. Like, we have decided in sci-fi, just sort of like, because so much of sci-fi is produced in the West... Um, and so much of, of like genre fandom happens in English, that English is the lingua franca of space. Before we've even gotten to space, other than like a couple robots on Mars, a couple people walking on the moon one time, and the space station. And that's fucked up. That's bullshit. That's like unintentional colonialism, right? Yes, Macy, what? But I'm actually, what I'm thinking of, though, when way back when you said that we could have done this whole movie in Korean, you could have, but I think it would have said something very different. Very different, absolutely. the megalomaniac colonizer hadn't been a white dude. Mm Mm-hmm. 
because I think that I'm not saying that this is not an impulse that occurs in other cultures, in other countries, in other races, but I think it is saying something about the state of the world today. Who is it who considers themselves to be privileged or entitled mm -hmm. to that sort of power, to the power to judge everyone? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Who is going to put themselves on the pedestal and say, from my position as the universal scientific arbitrator of moral correctness, mm -hmm. because I am a rational straight white man of American descent, mm -hmm. I get to decide who are the right sort of people. Yes. I think it would have been different. Yes. Mm -hmm. And instead, like the implicit message of Space Sweepers is that if we go to space, we all go to space and we have to go together as a as a planet and see everyone included and, and the we fact don't that... homogenize we don't leave ourselves behind when we do it right right and like that's what they're doing with the language and it was like chilling and incredible and that's why i think that space sweepers is the most important sci-fi movie <laughs> of the last 20 years but i think that we have talked about far too many very very serious topics yes <laughs> and should now talk about cuter topics <laughs> Which do that. <laughs> this this film is also a prime example of one of Macy's favorite types of fanfic that the other two grudgingly put up with when I make you read it, unless it's Lancejoui, um, which mm. is kidfic, kidfic. Kidfic. <laughs> yes, kidfic is it is very, very much of the yeah. trope of here are some people who are the least likely people you would think of to be adequate caretakers for a small child. Let's make them caretakers for a small child. Yep. Which I will admit is also what the Mandalorian does. Yeah. It's also what Macy's favorite novel, this is not true, um, <laughs> Anne McCaffrey's A Corner, which is about a magical unicorn space princess who a trio of grizzled space asteroid miners find in a pod floating in the depths of space and adopt. So kind of the same as this movie. Had, Anne McCaffrey just had a sense of what you could inject directly into the veins of a 13-year-old girl. Oh, and it was very much 13 space princess is oh, definitely yes. there. She could purify air and water with her magical unicorn horn as it's a very toddler. very similar to this, actually, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very similar. You know, you've got a terraforming tool that is also an adorable girl. Yeah. Love that, love that. A baby. And the funniest, funniest physical comedy in this film is when this small child sneezes and all of the adults immediately lock themselves in their bedrooms and dive for cover because they think she's a nuclear bomb. Yeah, yeah. but it's God, one of the things so that funny. This, but one of the things that this trope usually does, and it's the way it plays out, I think in A Corner, it plays out in The Mandalorian mm -hmm, with the child, mm -hmm. it plays out in this uh, with the girl that they rescue, is that both metaphorically and physically, mm. she becomes their saviour. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, in that there is always a, a, a scene where that child's powers are what save them. And that happens multiple times in Space Sweepers, that because they looked after her and have rescued her and become her caretakers when she has nobody and is vulnerable, she ends up saving them. And not and obviously in this one she is very heavily coded as a savior because she is also the savior of Earth and the savior of humanity, <laughs> but she directly saves them with her nanobots multiple yeah. times in there, the film which is there's a degree that... of fairy tale logic isn't there to it like mm. oh it's you will always tale. be rewarded for helping the innocent yes yes mm. yes yes and it's this idea that you've got the innocent and the dangerous mm -hmm. in the body of a, and it's often a little girl in this particular They're a little boy i think it can be a little boy but i think i've seen it done a lot more in the little girl yeah <laughs> like this idea of a slightly strange innocent needs protection but is actually very capable and dangerous despite herself like the way that she is made yeah like this I was also uh this was also river tam in firefly except yeah, like, i was thinking a little bit except that joss whedon had a big born sexy yesterday problem yeah which was not great if river tam had been like a six-year-old that would have been cool <laughs> that would have been cool ninja six-year-old what was the x-men movie that was just wolverine and like a tiny and the baby girl. girl yeah yeah oh gosh uh logan Logan, yep. So the, I didn't see it, but I read a couple of good reviews, and that's a similar thing where you have this grizzled, unlikely father figure I who is forced to look after a super-powered little girl. Mm. Who was mm. like his like clone daughter 
thing question uh, mark look yeah. x-men it could be anything <laughs> anything and, at all and just like from a, a like character building standpoint like it gives so much depth to these characters because they're like they're gritty and they're grubby and they're at each other's throats and they're bickering constantly and then like you put a child in their hands and they're and you're like take care of this and you see completely different sides of who they are and and the capabilities for nurturing that they're capable mm. of and that's the that's the metaphorical life-saving yeah that, yeah exactly that, that, you know we were made into a better team we were made into better more emotionally vulnerable more healthy and whole people yes. because of this girl Yes, mm. yes. And I think that that can get super tangled, but I think it's also the ways that it interacts with characters' genders is super are super interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there's... Um, and I think that this is also... If this had been made by a Western movie company, you would not have gotten this. Because I think that, like, in Western sci-fi, there is still so much of toxic masculinity toxic masculinity that says that men can't be nurturers and i so i think that this well, is well the like... mandalorian disagrees with that deeply, well i also right? i also disagree because we do have a very strong western trope of man loses daughter but how mm-hmm. is crushed and emotionally closed off because what of was the what was the one with them running through the fields the weird future sci-fi movie from like a few years back with the dad running and the daughter the fields oh interstellar Yes. But how demonstrative like a- are, are they before the daughter dies, right? Because, like, in, in Space Sweepers, you see Kim Tao, like, hugging her and playing with her and, like, bottle feeding her and, like, telling the robot nanny to, like, take care of her when he has to go off to work. I think that there are lots of different ways that this is done. And I think that, again, the Mandalorian mm. gets to that point, right? Um, and I think that I'm actually super interested in the interaction with Captain Jang mm. in this movie. And I'm going to say this in this sentence and then you can tell me why it's wrong. Okay. Becoming affectionate to this child does not emasculate Captain Jang. Right. No. Which is a funny thing to say about a female character. Because mm. she's like such... But you know what I mean. Yeah, she's like such a badass. And I think that what you're saying is like, it doesn't take away from her badassness to also what, be what nurturing. What I'm also saying, yeah, is it yeah. doesn't turn her into mommy. Right. And it, it's it's funny because I also don't want to say that being mummy is bad either. Mm. So I'm just like torn in both directions. But there is a thing where I could see a film. And again, Alex, you're probably right that many Western theatres would have taken it in the direction of, of course, the nurturing comes from the woman on the team Mm -hmm. and the men have to be coaxed into it. Right. I could see that it would depend again on who was making the film. But it didn't do that at all. It didn't really factor her gender into how this played out it factored her personality yes. it had way more respect for who she was yes yes and i think the movie deliberately kept captain jang away from mm-hmm. the girl in terms of the amount of scenes they had together right like she had far 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 more scenes with kim tae ho and with tiger park who's like the big tattooed ex-drug him. lord who is the one who immediately is like oh my god a child Yes, he is let me, immediately five hundred percent her around and cuddle her and do color and do coloring in with her. Like he is immediately in like he's very comfortable. Yeah, and with right. dad mode. And I think they made a deliberate choice that that was mm-hmm. what they were going to do. That the two men were going to be the one who had the journey of being the caretakers because it wouldn't make sense for Captain Jang's character. No, and, and she like, had so other she stuff to be doing. Have, she doesn't get changed. She doesn't get changed by the presence of the girl aboard. Yeah, Taeho does. But she, Captain Jang does not actually have a character arc. Taeho gets trauma resolution, I think, as much as anything. Yeah. Yeah, right? so, so he gets trauma resolution. Captain Jang does not have a character arc. She does not need a character arc. No, she's cool. She's, she's perfect. <laughs> she's perfect. She I don't know. Now I'm trying to think. Does she? I feel like, isn't there a thing? I don't know. Not None really. at all? Not really. I think the thing is, that it, again, it's that idea of you're seeing these people in medias res. Mm, she has mm-hmm. gone through her cool backstory narrative already. Mm. Like she is in sure, her sure, sure, sure. like badass. She's self-actualized already. State. Yeah, she's self-actualized. You know, the the most that happens with her is that she's being, uh, you know, benignly stalked by a Frenchman who wants to play guitar songs <laughs> at her over the radio while she tries to stab the radio until it shuts up. Amazing. <laughs> I wrote you a song. I wrote you a, I wrote a, song. You a song, Captain Yang. Speaking, it's about the kiss we once had. <laughs> speaking, 
sometimes. <laughs> Speaking of soft dads, right? Like, so I watched this movie twice. The second time, the first time I was like, oh my God, suddenly the main character, Kim tae is like extremely hot in the middle of the film and I don't know why this happened. The second time I watched the film, I'm like, at the beginning of the film, I'm like, you're less hot right here in the beginning of the film. And then somehow he gradually gets more and more beautiful as the film goes on and his soft dad energy gets bigger. And I'm not sure how they did that with like film magic. <laughs> Who knows why? I'm, Did you notice I don't, that? I don't have this at all. Oh, no. Okay, no. well, he's no. extremely beautiful. He's extremely beautiful. Okay. I mean, yeah, he, he, is, he is a very... Sure, but I didn't have the difference. Okay. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I just have a weakness <laughs> for soft dads. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm also thinking about now is, um, God, that season one of The Expanse and Jules-Pierre Mao and Julie, mm. right? I haven't watched and, The Expanse. <laughs> ah, so they're spoilers for season one of The Expanse, That's a okay. show which aired <laughs> several survive. years ago. Yeah. Basically, um, one of the big arcs of season one of The Expanse is a missing persons case in which the grizzled noir detective in space tries to figure out what has happened to this girl called Julie Mao. And it turns out that a lot of the bad shit that happens across the whole of the first three or four seasons of that show was kicked off by her father. And Mm. so there's this kind of sad lost daughter slash sad alien possessed daughter that is the motivating thing behind the evil dad's actions. And so there's a lot of stuff, even in The Expanse, when I'm thinking about it, about dads and daughters. Mm, mm, mm. However, Alex, I do believe that we were promised another corner. Yes, Alex has two corners. So we were just talking about like gender and, and Captain Jang and about how it doesn't take away from her like badassness to be nurturing. But then like the other cool gender thing that this movie does is the robot. And we haven't mentioned mm-hmm. the robot Bubs. at all. <gasps> Because, and the robot is, like, possibly one of, like, the coolest, best characters in the show. Uh, the, yes. This robot, Bubs, is basically, like, a blank slate. Quite literally, the robot doesn't have like facial physically, features. physically, aesthetically, yeah. Mm. It, it physically, aesthetically, yeah. It ha- the, the robot has a huge, huge, huge personality. Uh, and you, you sort of fall in love with Bubs instantly. And over the course of the film, like, Bubs gets quite a lot of trans coding uh, with how they slash she is thinking like they they mention that they are thinking about getting skin grafts and from the beginning of the mm-hmm. movie they're saving up money so that they can get skin grafts that's their big motivation because they are they are intentionally choosing gender choosing to perform gender when they don't have to and, and I it's cool it was also super interesting yeah. uh, they so uh, bub spends a lot of time standing on the outside of the spacecraft flinging Space harpoons, harpoons, which is not Amazing. how physics. It's not how physics. We don't <laughs> sure, care. We don't care. Really no, cool. every time, every time Bubs was suspended and then threw, and I was like, it's not how. It's not how physics <laughs> works. It's, it's, it's like a little care. bit how physics. It's not the worst of how physics. Like hmm. the thing that yeah. actually really got me, which will get nobody else probably, was I'm pretty sure that Korea is not on the equator. So what the fuck are you doing with the space elevator, sir? That's not <laughs> geosynchronous. You are incorrect. Anyway. <laughs> Macy had a point about the robot, which was, uh, so Bubs is ex-military surplus, smooth metal chassis, Mm -hmm. very much, you know, the bender, like, Mm. from Futurama model of a robot. And archetype. And fairly early on, we see Bubs reading a slightly raunchy girly magazine, you know, a magazine with hot woman on the cover. And Mm -hmm. you're looking at it and you're like, I see it's going to be one of those jokes the robot is looking at porn. Yeah. And then you very quickly come to realize that's not at all what's happening as the robot begins distracting the child by applying significant amounts of makeup to this small child. And you're like, oh no, I made, why did I assume that this robot was a man? Yes. Well, I would argue that they did that deliberately. Oh, yes, very deliberately. The context in which that assumption is made, the, oh, the Uh robot's looking at porn, occurs hot on the heels of another classic trope scene, which is the robot has just fleeced everybody else for all of their (laughs) money. Yes. Um, (laughs) So we have this, like, badass space gambler character who opens up their lock chest that they will rip off anybody's hands if they touch it, and they have all this money compared to everybody else who has no money. Yep. And then closes it looks very smug and pleased with themselves, and then they start flicking through the porn. And because it comes at the end of this deliberate mm-hmm. build-up of an existing male trope, 
You yep. miss it. It's and a very then good it, movie. Yeah, and then it's only when she's the robot is sitting opposite the little girl doing, you know, makeup for distraction, and the girl is the one who first calls her sister. Yes, 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 yes. And it's um, very cute. you just get this moment of the droid robot going, oh, "Somebody has gender euphoria." My gender. Yeah, gender yeah. euphoria. And, and yes, the, the yes, cheeks yes. go pink. Yeah. <laughs> and you're so like, cute. Oh, oh, cool. We can talk about this. So cute. So cute. And yeah, like I feel so. There's like this whole context of of trans and non-binary people only seeing themselves represented by aliens or monsters or uh, robots or other otherwise non-human characters. And mm-hmm. like that's like a very kind of problematic trope, but I think that this was done very, very well. Like speaking, of course, everybody's going to have their own opinion about this, but speaking as your fuck gender representative, um, <laughs> like I thought that this was very, very good. And I saw a lot of how lovingly the transness was built into Bubs's character, not just as like, oh, the robot is trans as a joke, but like, like the gender euphoria thing, like how mm-hmm. Bubs is building themselves into the person who they want to be and like how they are making choices about, about how they present themselves. And she gets to be that at the end. And she and that's gets one to of be the, that. You know, the denouement yeah. is that little scene. Yeah. It was very yeah. cute. Where she's like picking but the voice that she's going to get. It's oh very, God, very it's cute. so good. Very cute. Very cute. But we are at probably time plus something, but we were mm. promised a quick contemplation. Yes. A contemplation. I think, we, I think it is our podcast. We are allowed to go a little bit long if we want to, especially when discussing. Mm. So my question for you is... Oh, God, for us. Cheating. Nope. Well, as you so kindly pointed out, Macy, we probably don't have time for all of us to answer the question. Uh Uh This is a movie. It's a relatively long movie. It's a self-contained movie that is not the first in a series. It's not in a franchise. Do you think it would have worked better as a season of television? Yes. Or do you think it would have just been different? And in what ways? I absolutely think it would have been better as a season of television. Um, I was like halfway through this movie and I was like, oh my God, this TV show is great. How many episodes are there? And then I found out it was a movie. Um, There was just so, so, so much packed into this one two hour movie. And I think that it would have benefited even more from being even a miniseries, even like five episodes would have been great so that they could have explored a little bit more of stuff and things. So, okay, two things. It depends what you mean by this. Mm. Okay. Space Sweepers. Space Sweepers, the concept, could have been an amazing TV series or at least an amazing TV miniseries, a Mm -hmm. single season. Mm -hmm. Space Sweepers, this story, is a Bond movie with an endgame and a big fucking bomb that they defeat. That's not how a TV series works. That's true. I think it. I think you could have done it as a miniseries, um, and I think what would have happened is that you would have gotten everybody's backstory. There is enough plot, and there are enough twists in the plot. I think this could have been like a six to eight episode uh, TV miniseries or contained season, and it would have had the same plot, the same twists, the same you know reversals of fortune, the same revelations, and the same end game. And you could have spread it out over that much time, but you would have gotten everybody's backstory. Mm. uh, And you probably would have had a few more uh, physical locations. And I think you would have had to interact with their backstories. You would have had characters that came from it. Um, You would have had, you know, side plots. And you would have had to have somebody who is currently in the evil space force be turned to your side, possibly via being in love with one of the main characters. Like, there's a bunch of stuff. I think you would have gotten more of a sense of what the evil uh, space Tesla organization (laughs) actually was (laughs) and the kinds of people that worked in it, I agree. Like, I think there was scope there. And it's the same thing that happens when you read a novella or a self-contained fantasy story and go, there was so much world building here. You know, they could have explored so many corners. One of the reasons it feels like a very good movie is because you have that sense of you've only seen the tip of the iceberg but this is a well fleshed out world yeah precisely one thing that i missed in this movie that they didn't do that they didn't have time to do was when the emp bombs go off and everybody's translators stop working 
I yeah. went, oh shit, everything's fucked. Mm. It, like but, you could have gotten an episode, you could get a bottle episode out oh, of Oh yeah, you could have. Mm. And it would have been brilliant and cool. And you could have like dug so much more into language and what language means to these people and how it how it works and how they experience it. And But like this movie's already doing so much. They just didn't have time for, for that particular yep. Chekhov's and gun. And neither do yeah. we, unfortunately. Neither do we, unfortunately. And neither do we, dear listeners. <laughs> everybody thanks for joining us for this episode of be the serpent a podcast of extremely extremely deep literary merit uh i truly believe that space sweepers is the most important sci-fi movie of the last 20 years and i loved it so much from just the very first moments i really hope that you will go watch it because it's incredible tell your friends it's so much fun and it has so much heart and soul in it uh, I just really wish that there was more sci-fi exactly like this. Maybe one day we'll get a sequel or something to this. Anyway, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes, as usual. On the next episode, two weeks hence, on April 21st, we'll be discussing post-apocalyptic fiction. Uh, so if you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. Some of you may be remembering, oh, didn't you do an episode about Apocalypse back in, like, episode three? Yes, yes, we did. But that's more the apocalypse happening, and this is more after the apocalypse has happened. Anyway, it's going to be great. Uh, if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations. Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And by the way, I think that you would do great at picking up space garbage in late stage capitalism. This is a terrible compliment. I apologize for that. How about uh, your spaceship is probably really cool and shiny and hardly even looks like a dick. Yeah. <laughs>